Greetings and welcome back to an episode of AMSSM Sports Medcast in partnership with the British Journal of Sports Medicine. My name is Dr. Giorgio Negron and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Neera Jayanti, an associate professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Family Medicine at Emory University, as well as the co-director of the Emory Youth Sports Medicine. Dr. Jayanti is one of the leading experts on youth sports health, injuries, and sports training patterns, as well as an international leader in tennis medicine. Dr. Jayanti, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gio, for having me. I always love talking youth sports, as many of you know. Yeah, so let's get started. So with you being a leader in the field, can you please define what the idea of youth sports specialization is all about? Well, you know, um, this concept of single sport training and the significance of it has been going on for many years, and it's really evolved over the last 20 plus years. So there's kind of the research side of it, uh, which we've you know kind of developed a research definition of training one sport more than eight months a year, choosing that main sport, and then quitting all of their sports to focus on one sport. Uh, and David Bell's group out of Wisconsin created even uh, a different uh, Delphi definition for it, you know, that includes social factors. But the issue is really evolving in that the sports medicine community has developed some uh, position statements and opinions on what we should do about sports specialization, which I in large part agree with, uh, which are trying to be, um, you know, trying to advocate for multi-sport play and diversity. But I think we have to consider that there are, you know, a number of instances where youth athletes will actually choose to specialize and still also be successful. I think we have to acknowledge both ends of the spectrum. That's, that's perfect. So I know that you just published that editorial in BHSM for youth undergoing sports specialization. Can you elaborate more on that topic? Tim Gabbett, who a lot of people know, has done, you know, probably one of the world's experts on, on uh, training loads, and particularly in high-level and professional athletes, team-based sports. Um, he and I had met actually one of our World Tennis Medicine Conferences, and we talked about what that really means for the youth athlete. And we talked about where we were left with a, a gap. And the gap is we're advocating for multi-sport play. We're advocating for youth sports that have diversified experiences. But yet probably at least a third of them are still specializing. And amongst those, while there may be increased risk for injury, some of them are successful. But I think we decided that we should we had to try to give some framework or at least some sort of model to help those athletes that do want to kind of go for it and, and are specialized. And it may not always be what we advocate for as a sports medicine community, but we can't disengage us, ourselves from that. So, so the editorial itself really was you know, trying to be very a simple model to develop three types of athletes based on their load. We would call them either a load naive athlete, which is one that would be skeletally immature, for example, or never really been exposed to higher training loads. And then a load tolerant athlete, which would be someone who could go through the, you know, skeletal maturity adolescent growth spurt, and then be skeletally mature. And you can keep adding load even beyond what we normally might expect or recommend and be successful. And some of those can become high level elite functioning athletes. And then finally, we described what's called a load sensitive athlete, where you train them through skeletal maturity. And sometimes through that point or their skeletal immaturity, they, they develop injury and try to lower their ceiling and floor and lower their load, rehab them, return them back, and then they get hurt again. And they keep continuing to have trouble. And they, they seem to be very sensitive to even lower load than other athletes of similar age and development. And so we wonder if the elite level pathway is best for them or, or they have some really kind of more permanent, you know, load uh, modification. So 
that at least gives us a framework that each athlete, you know, these, you know, these decisions to be individualized. That's a good approach at looking at the adolescence athlete's tolerability. Can you talk a little bit about the skeletal immature athlete and if there's any relationship between adolescent growth spurt and sports injuries? Is there a way to relatively measure this? Yeah, you know, it's actually something I've become increasingly interested in and not necessarily because of my work, but, you know, there's Sean Cumming, um, Dr. Cumming, you know, out of the UK uh, and his colleagues have done a lot in growth and maturation. And, you know, we've um, had a, a lot of really great discussions and, you know, um, some of them are, their concepts have been around for a while, but now there's more and more data to support it. And simply put, the athletes, the youth athletes going through peak height velocity are more likely to develop certain type of injuries, particularly apophyseal injuries. But the type of apophyseal injury changes based on where you are on the term that, that has been used for a number of years, but now it's probably the best research term for peak percent of peak, uh, predicted adult height. And that's basically using mid-parental height and the athlete's height and, and weight and their development to get a percentage. And so when you're under 85%, you're basically prepubescent and you develop different injuries like Seaver's disease. And um, when you're about 91%, you are right smack dab in the middle of uh, your peak height velocity and you're more likely to develop more other uh, as you work your way up, like Osgood slider, perhaps even Little League shoulder and, and more physical issues. And then as you approach, you know, 95, 96% of uh, predicted adult height, then those people tend to get spine, low back stress injuries and, and PARS uh, defects. And of course, then as you're more skeletally mature, you're more likely to get your ligament injuries and those types of things and more than 95%. So it really kind of helps you predict the type of problem you get and then when you should be more careful, for example, between 85 and 96%. So what are your thoughts about biobanding, which is when they group players together based on their maturity and biological age? Yeah. And again, this isn't necessarily my uh, area of expertise as much as those like Sean Cumming and his, his colleagues, but, uh, uh, but I, again, have been really intrigued by it. And, you know, simply put is, you know, rather than grouping kids by age, you group them by their stage of development. And, like we just talked about, there's those that are below 85%, and there's 85 to 91%, 91 to 96%, and greater than 96% of your percent of predicted adult height. And if you group them by that, then you can make more specific rules how they should approach their training. So those in peak height velocity, would you want to reduce rapid directional changes and then in rapid increases in their training load. So you keep them kind of um, at lower training loads without big spikes or increases until they gain skeletal maturity. So you kind of base it not on their age. And in doing that, it seems that you can actually reduce a fair amount of these, uh, these injuries, particularly the over, overload and overuse injuries. Yeah. And that makes sense. And how about like when a, an athlete is working on their biomechanical deficits, like neuromuscular training for these youths? So, you know, a number of us got together and we're trying to put together a manuscript on this. Uh, and Greg Meyer, who's actually now my colleague at Emory, is, you know, probably one of the leaders in, in youth neuromuscular training and integrated neuromuscular training, which is INT, to help reduce overall ACL injury risk and in what I believe is all lower extremity uh, injury risk. And, um, you know, it's pretty clear that the earlier the intervention for that type of uh, integrated neuromuscular training programs, even at eight years old. And I mean, just the earlier you do it, 
the better the treatment effect. So when we're asking kids to, to get engaged in sport, perhaps there's a protective effect of doing more integrated neuromuscular training. And that may help correct one of what I think are the four key areas of, of training a youth athlete, and that's the biomechanical considerations. You know, we don't know that there is a great model yet to train these youth athletes, but there's a lot of considerations. I think there's far more considerations uh, with a youth athlete than there are with a stable college or professional athlete because their stage in uh, development and growth rates change and their body changes. And, and so along with the biomechanical deficits to be addressed, we should look at biological maturation like we just talked about. So we understand the stage of development. We want to look at workload and workload increases. And there's a couple parts of that. The workload, should, we had a couple of rules that you should train less hours per week than your age to reduce your risk of serious overuse injury. But workload spikes, where your acute to chronic workload ratio, we would want below 1.5, and some would even say below 1.3. And another thing is competition load spikes. And so Tim Hartwig, uh, Tim Gabbett, of course, does a lot with workload spikes. And Tim Hartwig, a different Tim, has worked on competition to training load. And so that number can vary, but you want to have we want to be careful about having high competition load. So even, you know, at some points you might only want to have only about 25% competition to 75% training uh, load to reduce your risk, particularly in the skeletally immature athlete until they get to maybe skeletal maturity. And then maybe you might go 50-50, but that includes even in practice times where you're replicating or simulating match play or game play that would actually count as part of your competition load because that's probably the highest risk. And then the, finally, the last one is the issue of specialization, my area of work. And, you know, we still, we do know that many athletes will still specialize, but there probably are the greatest independent risks with a specialized athlete as we all would expect doing the same thing over, over and over again may lead yeah. to more overuse and serious overuse injuries. Gotcha. So what happens when an athlete gets injured? How do you now manipulate those training loads going into training into the competition season? So one thing we need to do is not treat all injuries the same and we can classify the injury type. So the injury type can either be low, intermediate or a high risk injury type. And some of them are what you're suspicious of. So if I have a highly specialized athlete who has high workload, has 91% of their percent of their predicted adult height. So they're in peak height velocity and perhaps some poor biomechanical deficits. And they come in with low back symptoms. Well, I have to be extremely concerned or, or if they come in with, a, you know, medial elbow pain as a pitcher or something like that, I have to be extremely concerned of, of a high risk problem. And so I have to take those more seriously, probably, um, uh, be very careful and prolonged in their either absence from sport or reduction of their training loads yeah. and monitor them very carefully. If I take a low risk athlete with a lower risk problem, maybe patellofemoral pain or perhaps a muscular uh, injury who's skeletally mature and otherwise has reasonable biomechanics and you know appropriate workload and maybe diversified sport experience, well, I'm, I'm going to let them play. And we'll make minor changes. Maybe they'll work on some rehabilitative changes or maybe a very modest uh, reduction of their workload. So I think the type of athlete, the overall risk, 
and then their um, you know the type of injury plays a big role. In fact, that's the kind of the upcoming start to play study we're starting, which is trying to see what relationship the type of risk of the athlete has with their injury and their time to return to play in youth athletes. And we think that the higher risk ones will just take longer. I think that those those are the ones that you know it takes a lot to overload a youth athlete, and so to unload them in a way it may take a lot longer. There's always like a way of just checking in with those athletes. Cause you're just kind of like, it's, it's more of a, a very fluid thing then, right? These athletes, they go in and are probably low risk, high risk throughout their whole athletic career. Yeah. It's a dynamic or what we call an adjustable uh, training model because every three to six months it changes just when you think you figured it out and you got the a youth athlete all figured out. Yeah. They enter the next phase of development and then you have to almost reevaluate. So I don't know that we have the right answer. And, uh, you know, we definitely have a lot of close monitoring with the highest level athletes, but the probably the most vulnerable ones are these youth athletes who don't have those resources or going through that. So who is actually monitoring them right now? It's mostly coaches. And if they get hurt, our, your sports medicine provider. So, so I think there's probably a pretty large gap in how to monitor these more vulnerable athletes you're right on it's, it's just when you think you figured it out so i so i don't know the right answer I, I usually say every like if i see someone they're coming back from injury i'll try to find a way to monitor at three months and six months and you know we have folks we have athletic trainers that are youth sports tennis academies for example or you know who who continue the ongoing monitoring and and um and we might go out there i go out there myself personally to help but that's not universal right now and then for these athletes that do want to pursue the specialization, what do you recommend when they, what they do in their off season? You know, there's a lot of different types of recommendations and we can give the standard position statements where you should take at least two months a year off, which is our goal, at least from their, you know, from your uh, primary sport. Um, some will suggest that you should play a different sport. I'm not necessarily sure that you have to play a different organized sport, but I do think that you should develop diversified experiences. So there's two ways to do that is to play for fun and play other things for fun, some portions of the year um, to just unload yourself and mentally and physically. And that should be for several months a year, at least, if not more. And another model um, has been published in what's called specialized sampling, where you're still trying to achieve elite level status by the accumulation of hours in your domain. So let's say it was soccer or football in Europe you would do portions of it in structured coach-led environments, but then other portions would be on your own with friends, maybe in the same sport or doing different versions of it, like, you know, foosball or, you know, uh, mini, you know, like uh, just mini games and uh, yeah. anything that's on the field that's, that's really less organized. And then uh, there's an accumulation of hours and skills actually doing that as well too. So it's kind of a modified specialization, but, in, in, for most athletes, we still should try to get them to, to do some other activities a few months a year that would create more diversified uh, movement patterns. Okay. Well, do you have any final thoughts as we end this podcast? Well, we could probably do this, Gio, for a few hours, to be honest. But I think if I had to try to help our sports medicine community um, help youth athletes, I think we're saying the right message most of the time we think we should have we, we have to think of the big picture yeah. we want youth athlete we want sports to be accessible to as many youth 
um, in children as possible for all the benefits that sport has. And I would continue to, to push for that. And I think that's the right thing to do as we develop models for how to deliver sport. And this is in the US, in Europe, or wherever we are. And in doing that, we do have to recognize there are portion of you know, youth athletes who will continue for whatever reasons they are, uh, yeah. internal, external, to specialize. And we have to acknowledge that and help guide them with appropriate training guidelines and training models through development. And then um, I think then you can keep your engagement with these athletes as well. I think you can do both things. I think you can advocate for the majority of athletes while still creating uh, effective training models for the elite level specialized athlete so that we're not uh, universally judging. And then lastly, from a research point of view, we do need to demonstrate not just the simple like sports specialization is bad, but I think they need to be sports specific studies that help guide national governing bodies about what to do in each of these areas. Like what does tennis need? What's the dose for performance and injury risk? What does volleyball need? What does you know, soccer, football need and gymnastics? And I think all of them need their own studies. So we look at performance measures and we look at what, what age of specialization is appropriate, what's the appropriate workload. And then I think we'll make some bigger differences. And, and then long-term, then we need some a little bit more long-term health consequences. I think we're making a few extra jumps that everything is bad. And you know, um, while certainly there's risks, we have to keep these kids physically active. Let's not scare them away from sport. That's awesome. I wanna thank you so much for your time and thank you for filling in the gaps for us for youth specialization. Thank you so much, Gio. It was enjoyable to talk to you. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the AMSSM or Emory University.